0: We welcome you back to Bringing Light Into Darkness, and we return to our guest, Dan Kovalec, as he is describing the nature of these tunnels that the terrorists in Syria had created, specifically the one in Jobar.
1: They're absolutely incredible, Pedro. I mean, first of all, it had to take years of these to build.
0: Yeah, tell us a they, little bit about that. Where, where did they get the technologies to even do that? Is that some from foreign? Oh, absolutely. Supported? They,
1: they, yeah. they were being trained uh, probably by combination of you know people from Saudi Arabia, the UAE from all over the world so by the way again just to jump forward a little you know by the time the war is over the, the Syrian government has collected 84 different passports that is passports from 84 different countries, from wow. people who had participated in the war in Syria 84 countries.
0: That's a great point, because we're told that this is civil war, and what you're suggesting, and, and not just you, but this is what Seymour Hersh talked about, the rat line and these terrorist people coming down from, so many of them coming from, from Libya, but other places in the world, like you said, to this jihadist-led revolt, and I think with the overall vision of trying to create potentially a caliphate of sort. Yes,
1: in fact, the document that you mentioned, the DIA document is the Department of Intelligence from 2012, mm-hmm. says specifically in there, and again, you can find this online, that the, that the powers that were supporting the jihadists in Syria wanted to set up a caliphate. That was their goal. So again, this is undisputed. And as you mentioned, that's from 2012. That's very early on. So they have these tunnels that we went down in, and these are not just like... Tunnels that a rat would build. These are tunnels that literally you could drive a truck through, and in fact, they did drive trucks through them. They're steel re- reinforced. I mean, they have multiple. I don't know how many of the steel beams that hold these things up. These are very sophisticated, and some are go all the way into Jordan because a lot of them came in through Jordan into mm-hmm. into Syria. And so, what would happen is they would. Again, like in Jobar, for example, which is now, by the way, 96% destroyed after the war there.
0: And tell us, where is Jobar geographically? It's
1: right outside of Damascus. I believe it's just practically a suburb of damascus i believe it's east okay. of the city of damascus and by the way the importance of jobar was that they was so close to damascus that once the terrorists took over there they were shelling into damascus they were able to reach damascus with shells mm-hmm. so it was it was a very critical city for the military to liberate because it made damascus very vulnerable mm-hmm. so in any case in a town like jobar what happened is literally overnight these terrorist groups, took over the town because they emerged from these tunnels. No one saw this coming. Absolutely no one saw this coming because they dug these tunnels so deep. And so they would be able to just take over a town.
0: Excuse me. And in your article, you even mentioned, so this is a jihadist-led deal. They're making these tunnels. And then they're capturing, besides raping women, beheading whoever, they're actually imprisoning and enslaving, I I presume, captives to build these tunnels, to do the backbreaking work of whatever that is needed. Is that correct?
1: That's absolutely right. And then when the people, they were so exhausted and could not dig anymore, they would be killed. Mm-hmm.
0: So just to be clear, these allies of ours, these proxy allies, are raping women, beheading dissenters from their extremist ideology, enslaving others to build these tunnels, and then killing them when they become too weak to do the necessary work. Can you imagine if Russia had such allies, how it would be front page news everywhere in our country, and rightfully so. But these are our allies, and therefore no mainstream press dares to write about it.
1: So they, they set up these you know these little regimes in these towns, and they ruled them by an iron hand. And the truth is there were some Syrians who joined them initially, in part because they paid very well, about 50 to to $100 a day, which in Syria is a lot of money. But some joined out of religious uh, fervor, some joined because they didn't like the government, so, you know, there was an aspect of it in which Syrians signed up for this. However, what, what what's clear to me now is that most Syrians who, who did that now realize it was a mistake. They didn't understand who these people were or what they really wanted. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if, if you were a Syrian who joined these groups, Assad gave you a choice to either re-enter society, which many have, Mm. Or to be transferred to Idlib, in which
0: uh, it, the, the another terrorist, ter- an right, right, exactly,
1: right, God which almighty. is a pretty uh, magnanimous thing to offer.
0: <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, it's a pretty intelligent thing, right? Let, let's get all these terrorists in one part of Syria. Must have been thinking, let's get them all in <laughs> Idlib. At least we got them all in one place. But listen, I want to just remind our listeners, we're visiting with the attorney and human rights activist Daniel Kovalik. And Dan, in your article, you know, you indicated that there was this overwhelming support for Assad in this election. And I think it's really something that when you look, and I have looked at not just that type of support, which people will try to dismiss, but when you look at, you know, different polling, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamic sectarian groups that hated Assad, along with the secular state that he was p- promoting, yet even the polling from the heartland of such opposition, you know, recognized Assad's popularity. And specifically, I'm just citing in late 2011 a Doha, which is what the capital of Qatar, poll that's created by the monarchy, a major backer of Muslim Brotherhood, showed that 55 percent of the Syrians wanted Assad to stay. This is back in 2000, late 11, okay? They saw who was fighting. They saw these jihadists. They, 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 they saw the lines being drawn in the sand, that there was not any moderate opposition. A poll conducted by ORB International questioned some 1,365 Syrians throughout the country. This is in 2015 uh, from an article. It says, quote, 81% of the Syrians' polled believe that ISIL is a foreign American-made group, the survey stated. These Syrian people are not stupid. And I'm just wondering, you've been to Syria, you've talked to Syrians. What is your feel for that, for their geopolitical understandings and perceptions?
1: Yeah, well, again, I want to, you know, just build on something you said. And I also quote in my article a guy named Joe Biden (laughs) when he was vice president. Right,
0: yeah, please bring that to the forefront, too.
1: Yeah, who himself, even though, you know, Obama was claiming we're backing moderate rebels in in Syria in a moment of candor. Joe Biden said there were no moderate rebels. There were no moderate middle, he said.
0: Uh, Yes. In your article, you cite The Washington Post, October 6, 2014, remarks by Vice President Biden at Harvard University in which he calls out the Turks as well as these Gulf monarchies, the Saudis and the Emirates, that they poured hundreds of millions of dollars and tens of tons of weapons into anyone who would fight Assad. Those are the words of of Vice President Biden. And he goes on that those people receiving those monies, quote, who were being supplied, they were al-Nasra and al-Qaeda and the extremist elements of jihadis who were coming from other parts of the world. The choice was pretty stark. And it was between Assad and these jihadists. And so, in the
1: end, as you say, there was no other rational choice but Assad at that point. Mm-hmm. And at this point, and people feel grateful to him that he won the war, because had he lost the war. Again, quoting the DIA, the forces that were being backed by the U.S. and its other allies would have set up a caliphate in Damascus. They would have set up. A brutal, uh, unireligious, if you want to call it that—unicultist society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they would have destroyed churches. They would have destroyed mosques that didn't fall in line. And so, people obviously have rallied around Assad. That's what's happened. And it was very clear to us on this delegation that people were excited about the election. They were excited about it as it approached. They were excited. About it during the election day, we saw people literally dancing and singing in the streets. And they were excited when the results were announced. I was staying in my hotel that night, and I I mean, I couldn't not hear from the balcony. And I went out to the balcony and heard, you know, cars honking their horns and people waving flags and people shooting guns in the air. People were happy. And again, whatever they felt about Assad, and frankly, a lot of people expressed a sincere warmth for him. But even people who might not have that feeling for him clearly felt a sense of relief that this war is over. At least that's the perception, though I want to caution that it's not clear to me that war's over, because one-third of Syria is still being occupied by Turkey and the United States. You know, one-third of the country, and, and, and it's the most oil-rich part. And the U.S. has been stealing oil. Again, Trump admitted this in a moment, you know, when he was candid. And Assad said he was the greatest U.S. president for being honest, at least, you know, that that they weren't here for human rights, but they were in Syria for the oil. And so as long as a third of the country is occupied, and within that one third, you know, you still have these terrorists running around that are being supported and transported by the U.S. and Israel and others still a threat that, the, you know, the war could start up again. I, I, I don't think it could become what it was, because I don't think that there would be any oxygen for it. And, of course, all of the tunnels have been secured, and I, I think they couldn't pull off what they did in 2011 and 2012 again. But it's not over. It's so, not over also because of the sanctions, because in addition to controlling a one-third of their oil-rich land, there are sanctions that are preventing... Syria from rebuilding.
0: And it's not that they just are controlling one third of their land, Dan, as you know. This this is an illegal occupation. You know, Assad and their government never invited the United States or Turkey into their country in any form or fashion. It's an absolute illegal occupation, whereas Russia was invited. And I think, strikingly, The United States began its air campaign against ISIS in, what, 2014? For a full year, they failed to dislodge the jihadists, okay, in any substantial way. In 2015, who shows up from the invite from the Assad government but the Russian Air Force? And within a year or less than a year, within six to eight months, they are devastating these jihadist strongholds. If we wanted to get rid of these jihadists, we have the most dynamic air force in the history of the world. Again, it just ties back into what you said to start this show off, I think, is that we are intimately in bed with these jihadists. They are serving our foreign policy interests. Therefore, why would we want to wipe them out? But as soon as Russia shows up, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, the the amount of damage that Russia did in a short period of time was overwhelming compared to the U.S. did in the year preceding the Russian arrival.
1: Yeah, it was Russia and Iran. And remember, you know, led by General Soleimani, who Trump ends up killing. Right. Who really got rid of ISIS in both Syria and Iraq. And by the way, General Soleimani continues to be an icon in the region. When I was in Beirut, there's a bus to him in the town square. There's all sorts of building, uh, billboards with his face on it.
0: Interesting. How about in Syria? Did you see any?
1: Oh, yeah, billboards with him. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's like a saint in that region. And mm-hmm. it's interesting, you know, can we just go down the line? Is it, is it a coincidence that all the great enemies of al-Qaeda and ISIS have been killed by the United States? Mm-hmm. Gaddafi mm-hmm. was one. Saddam Hussein was one, right. Soleimani was one, Assad's one. They'd like to get rid of them if they could, right? It's, you know, what, what is more telling than that? And, of course, the biggest backer of these jihadists and, and the backer of the people who yeah. flew the planes into the Twin Towers is Saudi Arabia. And yet they're a big ally in the region.
0: Exactly. You
1: know, so what does that tell you? I
0: mean, it's never been
1: a war against terror. It's been a war of terror that we've been prosecuting.
0: Well, before we let you go, I, want, I had a couple of other questions I wanted you to address, if you don't mind. One of them, sure. and again, I want to remind folks that we are visiting with the esteemed journalist, author, and attorney, Dan Kovalik. So one of the questions I had for you, right? So we hear, and it's true, that some four hundred to 500,000 Syrians have died. And of course, under the misperception that all of these deaths have been caused by Assad repressing his own people. But the majority of people, at least I think it's some, what, 150,000 or more, are members loyal to the armed services of Syria that have died, right? And can you kind of break that down? You mentioned Idlib. There were other terrorist strongholds in Syria in which were which were basically just getting terrorized by these jihadist terrorist cells like in Aleppo for some time, right? And then once they got freed out of there, once they got dislodged, you heard all of these stories from civilians that had been terrorized for years within these cities by these very terrorists. That didn't get the light of day in any type of news coverage by the West. But can you speak to... The breakdown, are you aware of that breakdown of the casualties or deaths, I should say, in Syria?
1: Yeah, I think at least a third of the people who died were members of the Syrian armed forces. Mm. Let's remember again, when you look at these towns, again, that I went to Duma and Jobar, and there are many towns like that. Where the jihadists took over, and they held entire towns hostage, is what they did. You can imagine what it would take to liberate those towns, right? It is no. not an easy thing to do, no, right? No, not at all. And so you, you would have years. These, these Some of these battles would take place for years, house-to-house battles.
0: Unbelievable.
1: To, to extract these people from the cities. And yes, it was a brutal war, but it, it was brutal because of what was presented to the Syrian people in the form of these very well-armed and well-trained jihadists who lived in these tunnels who could easily retreat into the tunnels. And the battles would go on and on and on. They would tell me in Jobar, for example, they were, and in most of these cities, there were ceasefires at night. So there wasn't battles at night. But by the time the the, the cocks crowed in the morning, the shelling began again. And so by the time... It, again, Joe Barr is liberated, 96% of the buildings are uninhabitable. It wasn't that the Syrian military wanted to kill its own people. It's that, you know, it was very hard to fight the jihadists without there being a lot of civilian casualties. Again, and that was the nature of the war presented to them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, you know, a lot of people I talked to felt that Assad did the best he could to keep the, the civilian casualties low. He didn't want to do that. But, Again, we have to think a little bit about, for example, our own history. You know, we had a civil war here what lasted from eighteen what sixty one to sixty five, so about four years or so. And that was a war that was largely prosecuted just between soldiers, right? Like in Gettysburg, the soldiers just you know, stood on opposite sides of a hill and shot at each other while people had picnics. It wasn't for the most part directed at civilians, you know. Although what we do know is that as the war was winding down and and Lincoln wanted to finish it, you know he had General Sherman burn down large swaths of the South, right? And a lot of civilians died in that. No one particularly feels bad about that. They, you know, it's the nature of war, right? And here in 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 Syria, you had a war that lasted ten years and had numerous foreign fighters and foreign states involved in it.
0: Overwhelming, Yep. Yeah.
1: And so you can imagine that no one was going to come out of this unscathed, right? And, it, and I, it just was completely unfair to talk about the Syrian military targeting civilians or killing civilians as if they were shooting fish in a barrel. It wasn't like that at all.
0: Yeah, and excuse me for interrupting, but I think to your point, I mean, I think that's why the Assad popularity is what it is. I think people in Syria must have understood very well the challenges of city fighting like that, like you're saying, like when you uh, when you basically are just occupying a city and keeping civilian civilians as shields and that. W- one other thing that I don't, you know, I know I promised I would get you out of here in the next five minutes or so, but I just think in this discussion, it's really important. We've pretty much decimated a number of myths, but there's one that I think is really worthy of m- mentioning. And That is the unsubstantiated, the unproven claims that Assad has been going around gassing all of his own people. In February of 2018, this is a statement by Secretary of Defense James Mattis. He's the military boss, okay? He said that the United States has, quote, no evidence that the Syrian government used sarin against his own people. That would have included the 2013 period where we had an El Ghouta in August 2013 attacks. It would have included the 2017 Khan shakum deal that we resulted in 59 Tomahawk missiles that struck, that Trump endorsed or whatever. And it would have included the Khan al Assal March 2013 attack as well. So here you have the highest ranking military member in 2018 indicating that there isn't any evidence that he has seen of these atrocities being linked to President Assad or the Syrian military. Yet you have people like John Kerry and President Obama telling everybody that you with absolute certainty five years earlier that took us to the brink of war that Assad was responsible for all these deals and they never recanted their uh, their comments to my knowledge.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, and there's a lot to unpack there, but I think very briefly what we have to remember, first of all, is that uh, Vladimir Putin in 2016, in order to prevent the U.S. from attacking, actually worked with Assad to get rid of all the chemical stockpiles they had. In addition, as you know, a lot of these chemical attacks it, it, it have been debunked, the claims about them. We went to Duma, we visited the field hospital where the terrorists there clearly fabricated a chemical attack there. That chemical attack, uh, there have been members of the OPCW staff, the agency that oversees chemical weapons, uh, that have said uh, that that attack never happened.
0: And and excuse me, real Uh, quick, quick, in Duma, that was after Mattis's comments, so that's yet another gas attack, but go ahead, please.
1: Yeah, and so, uh, but that has got no press, as you mentioned, absolutely no press. Um, they report that a chemical attack happens and then and they never reported on the very credible claims and evidence that in fact it never did happen. Also by the way there is a little bit you know pot calling the kettle block here. If people know what happened in Vietnam with the nap of of Vietnam by the United States and the use of agent orange and even the US's continued use of white phosphorus, depleted uranium in places like Iraq it's kind of a joke, frankly, that we're pointing the finger at someone for using chemical weapons when the U.S. uses chemical weapons all the time, and it's, it's worse on a much bigger scale than has ever even been claimed in Syria. So, yeah, I mean, it's just there's such a lack of, of historical analysis, of factual analysis, and frankly, the war barely was covered. I mean, most of the time, I, you know, when I listen to NPR and they talk about the war in Syria, it's reporting from Beirut. Unbelievable. They're not even yeah. in Lebanon. They're not even there.
0: Right, right. Well, listen, I know I would promise to get you off. So let me let me do that. I do want to just remind our listeners that Daniel Kovlik, he teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He's the author of a recently released book, No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. We have been having him detail some of the findings that he presented in his most recent article that I've seen, at least, May 31st, 2021, that entitled, Syria's truly been a site of world war. Their vote for peace and against foreign interference must be respected by Daniel Kovalik, May 31st, 2021. Daniel, if people want to follow your work and get these insights and these documented findings and the sourcing of all of that from reading your your writings, what would your advice be? How can people access your work?
1: Well, they can follow me on Twitter at Daniel M. Kovalik. They can find my books at skyhorsepublishing.com, and I also write for RT News.
0: Very good. Listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you making time out of your very busy schedule. I know you have another interview coming right back up, but not nearly as important as this one. <laughs> Just kidding. Um,
1: no, it's thank true. You. It's true. This was, great.
0: <laughs> thank you this was so, great. Thank you so much. We will be... Wanting to get you back on in the next few weeks or a month to kind of follow and and continue this discussion. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for bringing light into darkness. Thank you. All right, friend. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the Internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety.
2: Shall is on